Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that is in the news a lot these days and has been at least since the COVID pandemic hit. And kids started doing school from home, or at least more of them, and parents got a chance to see their kids' school day in action. We're talking about the topic of parental rights in education. Uh, the history of it in the United States, contemporary controversies about it, and the possible future direction of the subject. And for the conversation, I'm joined today by uh, Professor Joe Griffith. Joe is professor here at Ashland University, teaching in the Department of History and Political Science, received his bachelor's degree here at Ashbrook as an Ashbrook scholar, and then went on to get his PhD from Baylor University in Waco, Texas, at their very fine program there. Uh, he went from Baylor to the King's College, right in New York City, in downtown New York City, as they say, um, and was there for several years and now has come to join us here. Uh, he did his doctoral work on this very topic of parental rights. And so we have with us a real expert, someone who's got a deep understanding of the principles and history that are at play in this contemporary and controversial topic. Joe, thanks for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Thank you so much for having me. Let me get started with this. We hear a lot about the issue today. As I said, I think since the pandemic, we've heard a lot more about parental rights in general, and in particular in education. But take us back a little bit to the origin of parental rights in education. Where does the idea really take off? Where does it start? Where does it start getting hold? Sure, yes. Um, the Supreme Court first hears a case on a parent's right to direct uh, her children's education in 1923 in the Supreme Court case of Meyer v. Nebraska. But to understand the origins of parental rights, we need to go much further back than that. Uh, the case itself says that this right was has been long held at common law to be essential to the orderly pursuit of happiness by free men. And so what the court says in 1923 is we are looking back through history through uh, our Anglo-American constitutional tradition and recognizing that this right has been fundamental for centuries. So to begin, uh, proper place to begin, I think, is with William Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England in 1765. He says uh, in that uh, commentary, which is like almost a second Bible for the American colonists as they're uh, constructing the Constitution, uh, he says that um, the right of parents to direct their children's education starts not with 
the preferences of autonomous individuals, adults, who are seeking to dominate people who are weaker than them, their own children. But instead, it starts with the um, intimate, delicate, tender relations between parents and children as interconnected beings. So what this means in, in practice is that parents have three responsibilities to their children, according to Blackstone. Uh, first, parents ought to maintain their kids, um, provide food, lodging, etc. Second, parents ought to protect their kids uh, from harm, from enemies, etc. And third, and most important of all, says Blackstone, is the right of parents to direct their children's education suitable to their station, as uh, he, writing an aristocratic Great Britain says. Uh, American common law commentators, they, they modify that phrase a little bit. Uh, parents have the natural or moral responsibility to provide their children with an, with an education suitable to their station and calling. So why parents? Why do parents have this natural responsibility? Well, for Blackstone and for the American common law commentators following him, it's simple. Parents typically uh, know and love their own kids. Parents are uh, uniquely positioned, uh, and maybe it's by the natural law, maybe it's by divine providence, uh, but parents are uniquely positioned to both have knowledgeable and affectionate care of their own kids. I think a good anecdote about this is a, there's a debate between a parental rights advocate and someone who wanted um, the states to be more involved in children's education. And the question arose, well, who should have priority, parents or the state? And the parental rights advocate said, um, well, parents, because uh, parents uh, are more likely to know and love their own kids. And then the, his interlocutor interjected and said, no, 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 I, I love, this is why I got into this business. I, I, I'm, an I'm an expert on educational practices, on child development. I too love your kids. And he responds and says, oh, really? Then what are their names? And so the beginning of parental rights starts with the uh, intimate relations of parents and children. Um, and it starts with the responsibility of parents to provide their children with an education. And so from that duty springs the rights of parents. Uh, this right belongs to parents because it's, we can generally presume that when we protect that bond between parents and kids, that'll actually benefit children because typically parents know and love their own children. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean that, and it never meant in the Anglo-American constitutional tradition, it doesn't mean and it never meant that parents have the right to harm or abuse or neglect their children, right? Because the right of parents flows from their duty all right. So the so, right of parents to direct their children's education starts in 1765. 1765. Okay. And that's articulated, as you say there, by uh, William Blackstone, the very famous commentator. Um, if, if I would say somewhat neglected today, maybe much neglected today, it's interesting you point us back to Blackstone. Um, then you said that, but the Supreme Court takes up this idea of parents' legal rights in education 
perhaps for the first time, in this case, you mentioned Myers versus Nebraska in 1923. Why is what's the case in front of the Supreme Court? What's the issue happening there? In 1852, under the leadership of Horace Mann, Massachusetts passes the first compulsory education law. And every state in the Union follows suit by the early 20th century. Well, the case in Meyer v. Nebraska is about a law passed by the Nebraska legislature, which prohibits uh, foreign language instruction in German until students reach the eighth grade. So well, wait a minute, is... Joe, that's a strange law. What, why do they pass a law of saying no teaching in German? The, the idea was that um, in order to assimilate into uh, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant American culture, children needed to learn English. America, it's not seen as a melting pot. Uh, and these laws are specifically targeted against German Lutherans who have immigrated to the United States. This law is in Nebraska. There are other laws um, very similar to this singling out the German language um, in uh, Ohio and in Iowa. A few years later, there's a law passed by the territory of Hawaii singling out um, Asian languages, especially Japanese, Chinese, and Korean. The idea is if we've just fought this war against this nation, we need to make sure that we assimilate people from these nations into American culture. There's another case at this time as well, taking place in the state of Oregon, uh, by a ballot initiative, the people of Oregon pass a law effectively outlawing private schools. The law, uh, the ballot initiative was sponsored by a group called the Scottish Rights, which is uh, effectively a front for the Ku Klux Klan the Grand Wizard of the KKK tours Oregon and says some pretty horrific things about especially Catholic immigrants, saying um, that democratic education is the only way to assimilate these foreigners into the United States. That's the context of that Supreme Court case, Meyer v. Nebraska in 1923. It eventually gets to the Supreme Court, and the court says prohibiting German language before the eighth grade is outside of the competency of the state. Uh, we can't say that the German language is inherently harmful or inherently hostile to U.S. citizenship. And in addition, parents have the right to select the mode of education that they see is best for their own kids. Uh, so they call this a fundamental issue, and they say that we didn't make this up. This is something that has been long held for centuries. Um, it's been held by Blackstone in 1765, in the American common law commenta commentaries by James Kent, uh, James Schooler, uh, Joseph Story, by dozens of state Supreme Court cases throughout the last few decades. And all of them have held virtually the same thing, which is that parents have the fundamental rights to direct their children's education. But in Meyer, you also see um, the court wrestling with these two fundamental principles. The court does not say in Meyer 
that the state has no authority to educate citizens. Instead, it says, clearly, students must be taught things that are plainly essential for good citizenship. The state has a role in forming an educated citizenry. Um, however, parents have the right to direct the particulars of their own children's education. So I kind of think of this as the state has this broad authority to set minimum standards for the education of citizens. However, parents have the flexibility to meet those standards in any number of ways that, that are acceptable. So let me ask you this then. You say, all right, that's interesting because now we have a little bit of a tension, right? We have the growing compulsory public education movement of the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, but we also have a Supreme Court starting in 1923 saying parents have the right to direct the upbringing of their children. Does that include sending your kids to private schools? Did the court make a ruling on that? Yes. So in Meyer, the court struck down that Nebraska law uh, prohibiting German language instruction before the eighth grade. Two years later, in 1925, the Supreme Court heard another case, Pierce versus Society of Sisters. Um, and the court held, there's this, there's this grand line that says, the child is not the mere creature of the state. Those who direct his upbringing have the right as well as the responsibility to identify and prepare him for additional obligations or, or something to that effect. Uh, in that, that, that's the Oregon ballot initiative that sought to prohibit private education. Uh, the court says in 1925 that that law flatly contradicts the 14th Amendment. Um, the parents under the 14th Amendment's due process clause has the right to send his or her child to a private school. Again, however, the court is dealing with these two bedrock issues in the American regime. The court again repeats that the state has the legitimate authority to educate future citizens, and yet parents have the authority, the right to send their kids to private school. Just to underscore this, these, this fundamental debate, I mean, I really think this is at the heart of the American regime. On, on one hand, you have uh, the practice of self-government, which seems to require an educated citizenry. This is, I think, stemming from this bedrock idea of equality. All men are created equal, the Declaration of Independence says, and if that's true, and as Jefferson says in that letter to Roger C. Waitman, um, no one is born with uh, a saddle on his back and no one's born with boots on or spurs on his boots. No one can rule over you without you, your consent. Equality means self-government and self-government turns into chaos unless the people themselves are educated. So on one hand, we have the principle of equality and the demands for democratic education. And on the other hand, we have the purpose, I think, of the American regime, which is to protect individual rights. The ultimate reason presented in the preamble to the Constitution is that uh, they were forming a more perfect union to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. The whole point of this is to enjoy not just liberty, but the blessings of liberty and to be able to pass that down 
in the way that we see fit uh, to our children. And so the court in these landmark cases, Meyer v. Nebraska and Pierce v. Society of Sisters, are, are wrestling with these two potentially competing interests at the heart of the American regime. So after those cases, you have, um, clearly you have, for example, Catholic schools take off as Catholic immigrants come to the United States, right, in the, in the early 20th century, and establish a network of Catholic schools. You certainly get starting in the 1950s, but especially 1960s and 70s, um, a growth of private Protestant Christian education schools, sometimes in response even to Supreme Court decisions about prayer in public schools, right? You have the growth of those that kind of education in the 60s and 70s. Um, but we're still in the same basic framework as that you've laid out. Government saying, we need educated citizens, but parents have the right to send their kids to private schools in order to achieve that goal of an educated citizen that is consistent with the parents' own uh, worldview and values and and religious beliefs, for example. But then you get in the seventies, I think, right, uh, the beginnings in many ways of the homeschool movement, which adds another layer of complexity to the whole issue of parental rights in education. Yes, that's right. Uh, the Supreme Court case that that deals with this issue, at least tangentially, is the nineteen seventy two decision of Wisconsin versus Yoder. Uh, this involves uh, Amish parents, three sets of Amish parents who want to completely withdraw their children from all formal education after the eighth grade. And the court rules in, and this is against, obviously, the compulsory education laws um, of, of that state. There's some interesting backgrounds to the case. The district superintendent, like behind the scenes, offers the Amish parents a bit of a quid pro quo, saying that, well, if you send your kids to school for the first three weeks of class, then they'll count for the roster and we'll get the state funding for it. And you don't ever have to show up, but at least say that you're going to show up. And and the, and the Amish parents say, no, thank you. That's, that's what we would call lying. <laughs> and so... Uh, we don't want to do that until uh, the school superintendent presses charges or has uh, state press charges. Eventually, it reaches the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court rules in a 7-2 decision that this is sort of the outer limit of the right of parents to direct their children's education. And it's really dependent on the unique facts of the case, the, the long history of the Amish community practicing their faith in a law-abiding way. But this has major implications for homeschoolers and for uh, religious groups who want to pursue alternative education to the public schools provided by, by the state. Uh, it's unclear what exactly this Supreme Court means for homeschooling or religious school, religiously schooled uh, children and, and their parents. Because the facts of the case, the court spends so much time, it has a sensitive and delicate analysis of the Amish community. But the question is, well, does it, would another group survive such scrutiny? Uh, and this is the last time that the court has explicitly, the Supreme Court has explicitly addressed the issue of parental educational rights, especially as it relates to school, public school, private school, or, or a homeschool. Well, that, well, so that's very interesting to me then, that, because 
Um, the homeschool movement certainly has grown dramatically. I mean, even since COVID, but before that, the 70s, 80s, and really starts picking up probably in the 2000s. Um, it's interesting to me, are there legal challenges that they face in in trying to grow the homeschool movement? Are there states that say, for example, I'm sorry, no homeschooling here. It's not legally allowed. What, Talk a little bit more about the growth of the homeschool movement. If it's the Supreme Court has never had a case where they said, yes, you have the right to homeschool your kid. How did the homeschool movement grow? Uh, yes, that's a great question. And um, strictly speaking, yes, that's true. The Supreme Court has not ever found a fundamental right of parents to homeschool their, their children. Um, homeschooling kicks off in the 1960s and especially the 1970s. At first, actually, it's sort of a left-wing hippie movement. 1980s and 1990s, it's, it's actually illegal in many states to educate your children at home. And there are court cases uh, in Michigan, in North Carolina, challenging these laws. And sometimes state Supreme Courts rule against the parents bringing the suit. Now, sometimes the law is explicit and it explicitly forbids homeschooling. And at other times, the law requires um, permission from the state to withdraw your children from school and parents uh, sue on those grounds because those uh, exemptions are not granted very frequently. Um, but it's really not until the, the 90s or so that um, homeschooling becomes more accepted and, and more legal. And again, this is a patchwork of laws. It, it's not one size fits all. Uh, there's an important case in California that establishes the rights to homeschool not on the basis of the exact text of the California law, but on the idea that the law requires that children be educated um, not that they be educated, strictly speaking, only in a public school. So we have this uh, sort of ambiguous status of parental educational rights in America today when you only look at the Supreme Court's decisions on the topic. If you recall from that first decision, Meyer versus Nebraska in 1923, the court said that it was drawing from decades, maybe even centuries, of an Anglo-American common law tradition. And when you look at those state Supreme Court cases in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and all the way up to the 1920s with that Meyer v. Nebraska decision, you see a number of examples where state courts upheld the right of parents to direct their children's education on the same kind of grounds that I have been discussing, which is parents have the fundamental rights to direct the particulars of their own education. And so while you can't simply withdraw your children from all schools, from all schooling, and do nothing but there's a case involving a like once a week, hour-long piano lessons, and the court says ah, that does not count as an education. Ah, well, that's, so that's very interesting. So you're saying that today, the legal situation in some states, at least, if maybe a lot of states is, the law still requires 
children to be educated. It still imposes a duty on parents to make sure their kids get educated. It leaves it, it leaves the parents free to decide what that education is in the sense of, do they get homeschooled? Do they go to a private school? Do they go to public school? But it still imposes those requirements. Are there states that actually check up to see, for example, if you're a homeschool parent, do they, they certainly check public schools and have to have certified teachers and curriculum, private schools in many states have some kind of certification requirements for their teachers or for the school itself. But then there's a homeschool community um are, do states legally check up on homeschool families to see that they're actually meeting the state requirements or do parental rights extend so far as to say hey we're just doing our thing here educating our kids and we don't have to report to you yes thanks that's that's a great question it's a it's a patchwork it's it's it varies by state so some state so in every state in the union today, all 50 states, homeschooling is legal in one form or another. Every state in the union, homeschooling is legal. However, what that actually looks like varies pretty significantly state by state. Uh, in Texas, for example, um, there is no notification required. Uh, you do not have to get to Permit, parents do not have to get permission from the local school board, uh, and I believe there is no test, no no checkup afterwards to make sure that parents are actually educating their children. So that's probably on on one side, one far side of of the issue. Uh, other states have somewhere somewhere in between. Some states require notification parents to notify the states. Some states require uh, that permission be granted. So you send a letter. Um, I, I was myself homeschooled and growing up in Ohio, uh, my parents had to send a letter each school year for me and my three siblings to request permission to withdraw us from the local public school. Um, and other states then also require after the fact testing or a state certified teacher to come visit the home and see the work done by the child to ensure that um, they that they met their minimum standards. It's important when talking about a constitutional right of parents to direct their children's education that the Constitution is a floor, not a ceiling. In other words, yeah, the, what do you mean by that? Some things are clearly out of bounds. The, when the court makes a pronouncement about the right of parents to direct their children's education, they're not saying that that's as far as parents can go. They are instead saying that's as far as the state should be able to go. So what the court protects is not necessarily the sum total of parental rights. It just means that that's the minimum protections. At a minimum, this is what the right of parents to direct their children's education means. And so, so um, yeah, go ahead. Well, if that's the, if that's true then, and there is this interesting patchwork, one thing certainly seems true, as you said, if all 50 states now recognize the authority of parents to educate their kids at home or send them to a private school, send them to a public school, certainly in the last few years, including in, in, in Ohio, just most recently, there has been there have been a number of policy changes 
things like vouchers or even universal statewide vouchers that the state government sends money to parents and then they choose how to spend it. Do they spend it at homeschool? Do they spend it sending their kids to a private school or do they go to their local public school? Um, it, what's the state, would you say, of parental rights in education right now? Is it if there's no constitutional right that's been established, but we have this patchwork of laws, is your sense that parental rights in education are very strongly entrenched now and aren't going anywhere and everyone's accepted them? Or is that not the case? That's that's a great question. Um, I would say that uh, especially since especially since early 2020 and, and the COVID lockdowns, when parents started like looking over their kids' shoulders as they're on school, uh, they're in school on Zoom, uh, that parents have, some people style this the, the great parent revolt of 2020 and 2021. Um, I'd say that there's a, there's strong, there's a lot of momentum behind parental rights. Uh, there are many groups forming. And, and this makes sense to me, especially in light of what the common law says, that parents are concerned about what their own children uh, learn, how they're, how they're being formed. Uh, and so I'd say that there is a lot of momentum behind parental rights. And I am really encouraged that compared to the 1980s, I mean, homeschooling and private schools uh, are at least in practice protected uh, virtually everywhere in the United States. Uh, however, I wonder what, I wonder what, if anything, the Supreme Court will say about this issue in the, in the next few decades. Um, I hope that the new standard that the court is using to identify uh, fundamental but unenumerated rights, I hope that they will apply that standard to the issue of to the issue of parental educational rights, and find that the right of parents to direct their education actually is a is a, is a fundamental right. Before we continue with our conversation, I think it's important to take a moment and tell you about our undergraduate honors program in the liberal arts here at Ashland University. Hi, I'm Rich Police, Associate Director of Student Programs at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Scholar Program is an honors program located at Ashland University for undergraduate students with an interest in politics, history, and economics. Modeled after a classical liberal education, you will read the great texts, not textbooks. Your classes will be conversations, not lectures. Conversations with other students, with your professors, and with great thinkers and statesmen from throughout human history. If you or a young person you know are passionate about life's important questions, if you want an education that emphasizes discovery, if you value liberal education and the principles of freedom it upholds, then this is the place for you. To learn more, visit us online at ashbrookscholar.org. And so, and therefore they would be, if that were true, then they would subject any state regulations or laws that affect that right 
to strict scrutiny, right? They would have to say, is there a compelling government interest to interfere with this right? And is this the least restrictive means, the least restriction on that right? Um, we're not there yet, as you say, legally. Um, in practice, we seem to be close to that in lots of places. Like you mentioned, Texas, for example, right? That seems pretty far along the lines there. What do you see as the future of parental rights in education? Do you see this patchwork continuing? Do you see a trend toward more and more legal recognition of this? Or do you see perhaps some pushback against the movement toward greater parental rights in education? My guess is that it'll continue to be a patchwork, but with a satisfactory floor that um, people like me who support parental rights are satisfied to some extent, at least, with it. And and what I mean by that is um, we've seen plenty of states uh, like New Jersey or California um, pass laws that require or significant or like heavily encourage public schools to um, teach uh, subjects um, in a way that I think many parents would object to. I'm thinking specifically on the issues of race and, and sex and, and gender. There's a, a recent case out of Maryland uh, at the time of this recording that um, a school district in Maryland uh, requires, I think it's kindergarten students to participate in a pride story hour. And originally when this measure was uh, promoted or first adopted, uh, parents had the right to be notified about when this would be happening and that they would have the rights to opt out of that study, which I think is probably uh, the best case scenario given the fact that the school board is made up the way that it is to have parents have the rights to be notified and to opt their children out of those classes. Then a few months later, the school board revoked those two policies. Parents would no longer be notified and they would no longer have the opportunity to opt their children out. Uh, that, court, that case is currently in the courts right now. There is a, a couple of parents, um, a, Catholic, uh, a Catholic couple, a Ukrainian Orthodox couple and a Muslim couple who are suing uh, that school board on the grounds that that violates their removing the opt out policy violates their rights as parents to direct their own children's education. And they want to insist that they're they don't hate anyone. They're not trying to dictate public school curriculum standards. Uh, they don't think that those these six people, these three sets of parents have the right to dictate to everyone else how their children will, how their children will be educated. Uh, but they say that the right of parents to direct their children's education means that we have the authority to opt our children out of classes or activities that we find offensive. So I think we'll see a, a few more cases like that. Uh, I, I bet we'll get different results in various uh, federal courts. And then I would guess that that case, one of those cases or a few of those cases will make it to the Supreme Court. Uh, at least that's <laughs> that's my my hazard. I, that's my guess that I'm hazarding. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, that's right. Because we sometimes think of parental rights as a 
great reminder to us, Joe. We sometimes think of parental rights as sort of parental rights and education outside of the public school system. But your point is the issues that will be bubbling up are parent the question of parental rights inside the public school system. And that's it's fascinating what the future will portend. Uh, Joe, what an interesting conversation. There's so much more. I have a suspicion that when these cases come out and decisions are made, we're going to want to have you back for that conversation, because I'm sure this is a conversation across the country that's going to continue. Joe Griffith, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today on The American Idea. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.